Good morning. I'd like to read for you John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear God's word. John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, hey, thank you for having me back again. Zach, that was very kind of you to say a few things about the fact that, yes, I've been here at Christ the King several times in the past. If uh, if I've never met you before... Um, it's probably because you've not been here very long. Uh, but I used to come from time to time and preach before you were able to find Seth as your new pastor. And I always love coming back to see you again. Um, Zach mentioned that I'm now, um, I have a new ministry going on. I'm not only the dean of students at Reformed Theological, Theological Seminary up in Orlando, but I'm also now, as Zach indicated, Shepherding pastors. I have uh, a, a position as a field shepherd with a ministry called Standing Stone Ministry. You've probably never heard of that. It's based out of the West Coast. I had never heard of it either until I inquired and found out a little bit more about it. So I have uh, taken on this position as a field shepherd. What does that mean? That means that I spend some of my time each week visiting with pastors and missionaries and church planters elders, deacons, other ministry leaders who have one basic thing in in common. They are hurting in some way. Are you aware that, as Zach indicated himself, uh, there are a lot of problems going on among ordained ministers these days? Um, One study, one bit of research recently found that 1,500 pastors are leaving their churches every month, leaving the ministry, exiting the ministry altogether. Depression is more and more common among men and women in ministry. Um, 70% of pastors say they have no close friends. Seven out of ten pastors, no close friends. Uh, Divorce, 50% of pastors are getting divorced. Same statistic as in our nation, basically. So with these things in mind, I wanted to use some of my time here at the last uh, quarter of my life, you might say. I'm kind of retired from being an actual pastor, but I'm able to use the experience that I've gained as a pastor over the years 
to come alongside other younger men like Seth. I spend some time with Seth every so often, about once every two or three months. And we uh, talk about ministry. We talk about things that might be going on in our lives. And pastors need someone safe to be able to kind of unload their struggles to. Someone who is not over them in authority, you, you might say. So thank you because Zach and Clayton and Glenn have communicated to me that you all are now supporting me financially with a monthly gift. And you just don't know how much that means to me. Basically, here's what it means. It means that I am now freed up because I don't have to work a full-time job. I'm now freed up to be able to travel, sometimes hop on a plane and go visit a pastor up in uh, another part of the country and spend time with him encouraging him and speaking to him and listening to him. Um, I'm now shepherding pastors in Canada, New Hampshire, uh, North Carolina, several here in Florida, even one in Indonesia. Uh, This is a wild story, but he got um, hold of me and knew that I'm doing this pastoring pastors, and he's having a tough time over there. Um, So this is seemingly seeming to grow. Uh, I've just begun... But your support and your prayers and your love has really encouraged me a lot. So thank you. Thank you to the elders. Thank you for all of you who are giving faithfully so that part of your money goes now to the ministry of helping pastors be encouraged and to stay in the battle instead of, you know, bailing out. That's what you're doing. So thank you very, very much. Let's pray together before I begin preaching God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this congregation. I pray for them. I pray for your blessing upon this congregation of your people, that the folks here in Vero Beach and in Central Florida and along the coast might more and more hear about the good news of Jesus through these brothers and sisters. And we ask now that your Holy Spirit will speak to us from your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this man. His name is Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen is an author, was an author. He's now dead. But Henry Nouwen is a fairly well-known name in some circles of Christianity. He was a Dutch Catholic priest, uh, best known for his writings on spirituality. He wrote some 40 books or so. He was very prolific in his writing, books like The Wounded Healer, In the Name of Jesus, The Return of the Prodigal Son, others that have meant a lot to me, and maybe some of you have read them too. Well, when Nowen was 32 years old, he was named a fellow in religion and psychiatry at the Menninger Foundation. And after that, for 20 years or so, Nowen taught at Notre Dame and Harvard and Yale in the fields of psychology, religion, and pastoral theology. And along the way, he spent time as a missionary. He, miss, he had a missionary uh, visit to Peru and to Bolivia and was also active in the U.S. civil rights movement back in the 60s. Um, Nowen basically was in hot demand, you might say, all over the world as a speaker and a therapist. But in 1986, at the age of 54, Nowen retreated from public life in order to become the pastor of a group of mentally and physically disabled people at a community called Daybreak up in Toronto, Canada. 
He lived in a house with six disabled people and helped to take care of them every single day. Now, these were people who had never known about Henry Nouwen. They had never read his books or heard his lectures. And if they had, they probably wouldn't have understood them very well. One of the residents of Daybreak was a man named Adam. Adam became Nouwen's special object of attention. Adam was the most severely disabled person in the community of Daybreak. He could not talk or move by himself. He was totally helpless. Henry Nouwen spent hours every morning bathing and dressing and feeding Adam. And this is what he did until the day of his death in 1996 at the age of 64. Why did he do that? That's the question I want to ask. Why did Henry Nouwen, at, we might say, the height of his career, with great potential for future impact in the world, withdraw into virtual obscurity? What was he thinking? We could ask the same question of millions of other people, and some of you as well, who choose hardship in order to obey God's word and follow God's call. For example, think of the man or woman who turns down a promotion because of the effect that it would have upon his or her time with their family or their commitment to church. Think of the married couple who use their two weeks of vacation time to go on a mission trip. Think of all the people who give away a significant amount of their money to finance churches and charities and missions. Think of the high school student out on a date with the hot guy that every teenage girl would love to go out with, but when he pressures her to cross the line physically, she says no and finds a ride home. What a waste, some people would say about these folks. What were they thinking? Why turn down these kinds of opportunities? Well, you know, the Bible is full of stories about people like that too. People who traded something of great value in the eyes of the world for something of greater, more enduring value. There's Abraham walking away from the fertile plain of Sodom and letting his nephew Lot have it. What a dumb thing to do, some people would say. There's Queen Esther risking her royal standing and her life even to intercede for her suffering people. There's John the Baptist who chose to decrease so that Jesus might increase. Think of the disciples too, leaving their fishing nets and following a carpenter from Nazareth named Jesus. And there's that poor woman you might have read about in the Gospels who put in all that she had into the treasury of the temple. And here in John 12 is another woman, a story about a woman named Mary who breaks open a flask of costly perfume and pours it all out on Jesus. All of these people had something in common, something like a perspective or a value system or a central driving motive that makes for a life well lived. 
And in a few minutes, I'm going to tell you what I think that motive is. But first, let's look at this passage of Scripture and take it apart a little bit. I want to share you three things with you this morning. I want to show you a large dinner, a lavish gift, and a loving defense. Simple little three-point outline. If you're making notes, we'll start with a large dinner and then talk about a lavish gift and finally a loving defense. So let's dive into, first of all, a large dinner. This story here in John 12 is actually told in two other Gospels. It's also found in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Matthew 26, Mark 14, and here in John 12, talk about this woman named Mary. Now, if you're real astute in your knowledge of the Gospels, you might know that there's a similar story in Luke where he tells about a sinful woman who anoints Jesus with ointment mixed with her tears. But that is a different woman, it's a different time, and it took place in a different place. But Matthew, Mark, and John talk about Mary. Now, when we come here to John chapter 12, we're less than a week away from the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 1 says that it's six days before the Passover, which means it's Saturday, right? It's Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, the evening before what we know as Palm Sunday. In just a few days, Jesus is going to be arrested and tried and condemned and nailed to a Roman cross. But on this day, Jesus and his disciples are in the village of Bethany, which was a little town about two miles east of Jerusalem. And they've been invited to a dinner in this story, a dinner given, it says in verse 2, in honor of Jesus. Now, according to Matthew and Mark's account of this story, this dinner is taking place in the home of a man named Simon. And Matthew and Mark even call him Simon the leper. Apparently he had leprosy earlier in his life, but it's probable that he had been healed of that leprosy by Jesus. And he gives this dinner to Jesus in honor of him and as a way of showing gratitude to him for healing him of his leprosy. That's what most scholars believe, and it makes a lot of sense to me too. Also, a lot of people believe that Simon was the father of Lazarus and his sisters Martha and Mary, all three of whom are here at this dinner. Did you notice their names here in John 12? Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. Now this is the same Martha and Mary, some of you know, who welcomed Jesus into their home one day and where Martha was busy serving And Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching. And it's interesting that even in this story, here in John 12, what is Martha doing? She's serving, she's busy serving, and where is Mary? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus with this ointment. Um, It says that in verse 2, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table while Mary was sitting at his feet. Now, what about Lazarus? Lazarus, you may remember, had died in John 11, the previous chapter, and Jesus brought him back to life, as it says there in verse 1. So, think about all of these facts about Simon. Simon the leper, healed of leprosy, gives the dinner in 
gratitude to Jesus for healing him, but he's also the father of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead in the previous chapter. And so possibly Simon is also welcoming Jesus into this into his home and giving him this dinner to thank him for raising his son to life. So think about all that as a context of what's going on. Whatever the case, this dinner is a really big deal. It's a big deal. It's being attended by probably a couple of dozen people or more who are all enjoying dinner together with Jesus, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary in Simon's home. So there you have a large dinner. But let's talk next about the lavish gift because that's really kind of the central thing that's going on in this passage, the lavish gift. It says in verse 3 that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now this is very different from our culture. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on here and why it's so important. Anointing was a very common thing to do for important people back in Jesus' day in the ancient Near East. But nothing was common about this particular anointing. Now, according to both Matthew and Mark, this ointment, or perfume we would call it, that Mary brought to the dinner was contained in an alabaster jar or flask. And this jar alone was very, very costly. Alabaster. We know that it was alabaster because of what Matthew and Mark tell us. Alabaster is a stone similar to but softer than marble. It came from Egypt. And it was used for making these luxurious ointment or perfume jars. The ointment or perfume inside the jar was made of what? Pure nard. Now that's not a word we use very often. It was made of pure nard. What is that? It's an herb. It's grown in the Himalayan mountains between Tibet and India. Nard is red and it smells like gladiola. Some of you know that smells very rich and very wonderful. Nard had to be carried by caravan on the back of camels back in that day through miles and miles of mountain passes to get here to the Middle East and they were all transported in sealed boxes or flasks. So this perfume, given all that knowledge, would only be used on very special occasions. And it was staggeringly expensive. How expensive, you say? Well, verse 5 says that it was worth at least 300 denarii. We don't use denarii in our culture. What is a denarius? What were denarii? Well, the daily wage of a laborer back in Jesus' day was one denarius. One denarius, daily wage for most common laborers. Here in this passage, this perfume is worth 300 denarii. That's nearly a year's worth of a worker's pay in that time period. Now let's bring that up to date a little bit so we can appreciate how much that was. The minimum wage for a worker here in uh, the state of Florida is $10 an hour. It's going to go up, by the way, in September. But it's $10 an hour here for high school student, minimum wage worker. Maybe some of you 
our minimum wage employees. So a day's gross pay, a day's gross pay for a minimum wage worker is $80 here in our state. Well, let's call that one denarius, a daily wage, one denarius, $80. 300 denarii, do a little math, comes to what? $24,000. 300 denarii, 24,000. Friends, this was exquisite perfume. The best perfume money could buy. Worth nearly a year's wages. What is your annual salary? (laughs) You don't have to answer that out loud. Uh, Mary, in her case, pours it all out on Jesus. Does that help understand what this perfume was worth? It says in verse 3 that there was about a pound of this perfume inside that alabaster jar. It was sealed shut at the top, so Mary had to break the jar open in order to get the perfume out. Now the fact that she broke it made the jar worthless. And so all of the perfume that's in that flask was poured out on Jesus. She poured some of it on Jesus' feet, the text says, And Matthew and Mark add the fact that she poured some of it also out on his head. The entire pound of perfume. From head to foot, in other words, Jesus bore the strong scent of gladiolus. Verse 3 says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. One commentator who thought about this a little more said this. He said, it is likely that Jesus kept this scent on his body through the following week. When he was suffering the anguish of crucifixion, Mary's gift remained. It was the last truly beautiful fragrance the Savior smelled as he went to the cross. Now I want you to notice three things about this lavish gift that Mary gave to Jesus. First, it was spontaneous. Jesus didn't ask Mary to do this. He didn't have, he, he didn't, she didn't have to do it, right? It was voluntary. There was no rule saying that if you really love Jesus, you should pour expensive perfume all over him. No, it was freely given from Mary's heart to Jesus. Spontaneous. Second, it was shameless. It was shameless. Mary did this publicly. Publicly, The disciples were there watching. So were her brother and sister. So was her, we think, we think, father, Simon, and all of the other dinner guests. And who were they? They were mostly men watching Mary do this. What would they think? What would they say? How would they respond? You know, Mary was an introvert, I think, because of what we see about her in the Gospels. Mary was an introvert, but what does she do here? She steps into the spotlight and does the most outrageous, risky thing imaginable. What would they think about her? Would they think her stupid? Would they think her naive? Or would they be jealous of what she was doing? Worst of all, what would Jesus feel about her act of pouring perfume all over him? Would it offend him? Would he be bothered by it? Would it be embarrassing to Jesus? See, all of these questions surely had to be going through Mary's mind as she knelt at his feet and anointed his feet and his head 
with perfume. Now, to touch somebody's feet back in that day, that's another thing. To touch someone's feet was something that only a slave would do. It was considered demeaning for Mary to have sat at his feet and touched his feet with this perfume. And women, women would never let their hair down in the presence of any man besides their husband. But Mary wiped his feet with her hair. She defied conventions in order to express her love to Jesus. So it was spontaneous, it was uh, shameless, but in the third place, it was sacrificial. It was sacrificial. wonder how long it had taken Mary to save enough money to buy that perfume, right? Uh, maybe she spent her inheritance to obtain it. Maybe she drained her savings account to purchase this perfume. This perfume was Mary's financial security for her future. Um, it might have even been her dowry. So if Mary's dowry was contained in that flask, she was sacrificing her hope for marriage in the future by giving the perfume to Jesus. Well, what would you have thought if you had been there at that dinner that, that, that evening? What would you have thought? Perhaps you can identify with Judas Iscariot. In verse 4, it says that Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, you know, the one who was soon to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, he wasn't the only one thinking that. Because if you read Matthew's account of this story, Matthew says that when the disciples saw it, when the disciples saw what Mary did, They were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So see, Judas Iscariot was simply one of many of the disciples who was saying, hey, that is wasteful. Why in the world would you pour that perfume out on Jesus? And Mark adds that they rebuked her harshly. You're out of your mind, they were saying to Mary. What a fool you are. You're just throwing good money away. And of course, as the text says, Jesus tells the disciples, the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now look, just for the record, this does not mean to not help the poor. You know that, right? Jesus showed concern for the poor everywhere he went. And the Bible teaches us really clearly that we should be mindful of the needs of poor people around us. But right now, in this place, what matters more is that Mary expresses her devotion to Jesus while there is still time. But the disciples just don't get that, do they? They condemn Mary for her act of spontaneous and shameless and sacrificial love. Which brings us to the third and last thing I want to talk about. Not only the uh, large dinner and lavish gift, but let's talk about the loving defense that Jesus gives to Mary. The loving defense. His reaction is opposite to that of the disciples. He says in verse 7, Leave Mary alone so she may keep it for the day of my burial. See, Jesus knew that Mary gets it. She gets it. She and no one else understood what this moment was all about. 
She knew that Jesus was about to die soon. He had talked about his death time and time again during his ministry, and she believed him. She had heard that message and embraced it for herself personally. She believed that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, as he demonstrated in the previous chapter. So this was an act of faith and commitment to and love for Jesus Christ. Mary believed the word of God and the word of Jesus. She was anointing Jesus' body in preparation for his death and his burial in just a few days. So we come to the question of the day, which is what I hinted at at the beginning. Why did she do it? Why did Mary go to such extremes? Here's the reason. It's because to her, Jesus had supreme value. To Mary, Jesus had supreme value. Compared to him, the alabaster jar of perfume was not worth keeping. It was not worth hanging on to. Mary valued him much, much more than she valued it. So I ask you, what's something that you've given up because you valued something else more? I remember when my wife and I moved from Greenville, South Carolina, up to St. Louis, Missouri, back in the early 80s, for me to go to seminary in St. Louis. It was a joint decision by Susie and me. Um, We had two kids at the time, and we decided, we felt, that God was calling me into pastoral ministry, and she wanted to be a pastor's wife. So one day in 1982, we packed up our two little kids and loaded a U-Haul truck with all of our belongings and hitched our 1969 Chevy Biscayne to the back and drove all the way up to St. Louis for me to begin my seminary years. And we lived in St. Louis for seven years, four in seminary and three as my first pastorate in St. Louis. Those seminary years were long and hard. We shopped at Kroger grocery store, and they sold a generic brand of a lot of different foods that simply had black and white labels. We ate so many generic hot dogs and mac and cheese during those four years of seminary. Um, We had two more children, too, while I was a seminary student. And so now we had four kids. And those of you who've raised children, you know, that is hard. It takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of sacrifice. You might say, why did we do it? Why would we do something like that? It's because we valued something more than that hardship. And in my case, that was we valued ministry. Ministry for the Lord more than our comfort. We valued the chance to spread the gospel more than having money (laughs) and having power and having privacy and all those other things. Hey, you can tell a story like that too. I suspect if we went around the room today, many of you, most, maybe all of you, would tell about something hard you did because you valued something grand more, something glorious more than comfort and ease and predictability and safety. You went to extremes. You took a risk, not knowing how it would turn out. You did what Henry Nouwen did, like I told you at the beginning. You did something that other people questioned. 
and thought was wasteful. And maybe they called you fools. So if you had been in Simon's house that night during that dinner and said to Mary, Mary, why did you do it? Why did you pour that out? She would say, I value him more than I value it. You might say, wow, what a sacrifice, Mary. And I think Mary would say, sacrifice? It was no sacrifice because I've gained something so much better than what I've given away. I have a relationship with Jesus, she would say. I have a relationship with the Son of God Himself who loved me and is going to die for me and bring me forgiveness of all of my sins. Why, Mary would say, I'm the richest person alive. Don't think I sacrificed anything. Giving Jesus this perfume is the very least that I could do compared to what He's done for me. Earlier I said that some people have a central motive. You remember that? A driving motive or a perspective in life that makes for a life well lived. Well, see, this is it. This, this, is, this is what I'm talking about. Love for Jesus that outweighs the love of lesser things. It's the conviction that knowing and serving Jesus Christ is the greatest joy in life. And everything else is second rate compared to that. Jesus talked about this, you know, in Matthew 13 where he talked about the kingdom of heaven being like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. And he said also that the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought that pearl. See, Jesus is that treasure hidden in the field. Jesus is that pearl of greatest price. And when you know that, and when you believe that, you're ready to break open your alabaster jar. You're ready to let go of fear and worry and greed and boredom and give yourself fully to God and to other people. St. Augustine talked a lot about disordered loves. don't know if you ever heard that expression of disordered loves. Here's what he meant by that. If you love anything more than God, your life is going to reveal it because your loves are out of order. You've got something wrong in the top place if you love something more than God. You'll be protective. You'll be self-absorbed. You'll be consumed with things like reputation and advancement and power and comfort. But if your loves are in the right order, that is with God at the top, if you love Jesus supremely, then that love is going to empower you to give yourself away like Mary did. You'll be more and more humble. You'll be less and less self-absorbed and more and more ready to give and let go of lesser loves. This is why Henry Nouwen did what he did and why so many millions of people throughout time have done what they've done, have chosen hardship, over ease and comfort, have chosen obscurity over fame and celebrity. This is why he traded his career of teaching and lecturing to thousands of people for caring for a mute, helpless man named Adam. His love for Jesus outweighed his other loves. 
and changed him from a man who needed fame and the approval of others into a man who could live in obscurity and still be happy. As someone said, now in valued downward mobility, more than upward mobility, he valued the downward mobility of living with the poor more than the upward mobility of academia. See, you can tell who or what you love by what you're willing to lose. I'll say that again. You can tell who or what you love by what you're willing to lose. Judas Iscariot's loves were disordered, you see. Love for Jesus was not at the top. Love for Judas was at the top. He was a thief, it says in verse 6. He used to steal from the offerings that people had contributed to the ministry of Jesus and his disciples. Mary's love, by contrast, were ordered properly. They were in the right order. She knew she was a sinner and needed the mercy of God, and she believed that Jesus had brought that mercy to her. Jesus was her treasure hidden in a field. Jesus was Mary's pearl of great price. She didn't need the perfume because she had Jesus. As fine as it was, that perfume was a gift to give away rather than to keep. She valued him more than she valued it. So I want to leave you with a question. I bet you've heard and seen the television commercial that says, What's in your wallet? Well, I'll ask you, what is in your alabaster jar? What's in your alabaster jar? That is, what is in that jar, that box, that thing, that thing in your heart that you've been holding on to because you love it more than you love him? Maybe it's a talent or a gift that you've been hiding because you're afraid to fail. Break it open. Break it open. Step out in faith. Find a place to serve. Maybe it's money. Break open that jar and start giving to advance the gospel. Maybe it's comfort and security. Come on, break it up. Break it up. Do something risky because you love Jesus. Maybe risky for you is, well, I'll ask you, what is something risky that you could do for Jesus Christ? Maybe risky for you is stepping across the street and getting to know your neighbors. Maybe it's joining a small group or a Bible study here at church or getting into a discipleship relationship with someone who is wiser and older than you in the faith. Maybe it's serving in a local ministry or writing letters to one of your missionaries or something like that. The choices are endless. The point is, don't settle. Maybe in your alabaster jar are your hopes and dreams for the future. You have this image, you know, of a perfect marriage, a perfect family, a cozy little house on a tree-lined street where everybody's healthy, happy, and holy. Well, I'll ask you, what if that's your plan but not God's plan? Maybe it's a sin in your life that's in your alabaster jar. And God, through this passage of Scripture, is challenging you to break that open by the strength of the Holy Spirit by repentance and by trusting and by sharing that struggle that you have with someone that you trust. 
Maybe in your alabaster jar is a lifestyle, like a lifestyle of busyness. You're just too busy. Well, take a sledgehammer to busyness this summer. You know, if there's one thing we learn from Mary, it's the value of sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to His Word. And that takes time. You have to slow down, change some things in your life, say no to some things in order to do that. Make this the summer that you get on a consistent Bible reading plan. Maybe that's what God is speaking to you about right now. Whatever the case, this passage of Scripture is calling out to all of us today by and saying something like, do something wasteful, <laughs> do something risky, go to extremes, dare to be a disciple, break open an alabaster jar for Jesus Christ. You say, gosh, I don't know if I can do this. I know what you're saying is true, but 300 denarii, that's a lot of denarii. <laughs> it's hard to be this risky. I love my comfort. I love my plans. How can I develop a love for Jesus that rises above all other loves? Well, in order to do that, I want you to remember something. Something else that John wrote. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4. He says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Jesus didn't break an alabaster jar. He was the jar. He left His throne of glory, came to this world, lived, died, and rose again for you. Jesus broke open the alabaster uh, flask of His own life and poured out His sweet, fragrant love upon each of you from the cross. And the more you think about that and the more you dwell in that and preach that gospel to yourself every single day, the more you will love Him and the more your loves will be in the right order. And the more you'll be able to say the words of the hymn we're about to sing. Lord, take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. And take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Let's pray. Father, you have challenged us today. You've certainly challenged me to take a look at our alabaster jars. Father, we confess that sometimes we're more like Judas and the disciples than like Mary. We're practical We play it safe. We like to plan our day and stick to our plan. We love our comfort. We love our routines. We love our predictable days. We love our money. We love it when people think well of us. We love our privacy. We love our time. And God, so often these things, these loves are at the top of our list with you somewhere down in the middle or maybe even at the bottom. Lord, you've shown us Mary, a woman who loved you most, who valued you more than money and reputation. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will so move in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here at Christ the King, 
that you will change the order of our loves, that Jesus might be the joy of our loving heart, as we sang earlier today. We pray, Father, that your spirit would work in us the passage that we've looked at this morning. Help us, Lord, we pray, to become more and more like you, to be more and more enraptured with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.